This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Hello, welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Renthal Street Components. With over 800 street fitments for handlebars, bar mounts, clip-ons, brake pads, chains and sprockets, check out renthal.com. On today's Paddock Pass podcast, we're going to be talking to Sepang Test, the first time in 2022 that MotoGP bikes have been back out on track. And we've been lucky enough that David Emmett's been out in Malaysia. Neil Morrison's obviously been covering it from Barcelona and Adam Wheeler's keeping abreast of pretty much everything going on on two wheels. But uh, David, we'll start off with you because obviously enough, on the ground in Sepang, you saw that there were 18 bikes covered by a second during the course of the test. We saw Anea Bastianini leading the way. We saw Aprilia competitive. There was a lot of different headlines to take from Sepang. But what was the actual feeling within the paddock? Uh, there was there was quite a buzz in the paddock. I mean, it was uh, it was there was a, a really sort of positive feeling. Everyone was excited to be back. I think everyone was excited to be back. Uh, in Malaysia, despite the fact that um, it was, I mean, you know, the, the bubble was extremely restricted. Uh, we were basically only allowed to travel between the uh, airport, the hotel and the circuit. Um, although some people seem to interpret that slightly differently, which we won't go into right at the moment. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it was, it, and the, the, honestly, for me, it was one of the most stressful tests I've ever been to just because of the whole rigmarole of doing all the paperwork just to, just to actually get there, uh, get back there and going was extremely stressful and very, uh, you know, extremely bureaucratic coming back. I, uh, drove back, uh, basically dropped off my car keys, walked through the, uh, the, the check because, you know, they scan you in everywhere with a, with an app and everything and check your temperature, um, uh, dropped my bag off, walked through and that was it. I'd uh, given myself loads of time to get in and out. Um, but I could have, uh, I probably could have done it in about 45 minutes instead of three hours. Dave, did you, when you arrived in Kuala Lumpur, did you walk through the airport shouting MotoGP, MotoGP? I did, I did, yeah. Well, I, I did, yes, exactly. Every time someone came up to me to ask me something, I would just say MotoGP, and they would go ah, and then point somewhere, um, which is uh, ex- ex- extremely useful. So it was, um, it was odd, but it was also uh, so we got sent into, we, we got a special permit to come into Malaysia. Uh, so you've got a piece of paper and it's printed and then you have to go and get it, uh, take it to the foreign police to get it to the immigration police to get it stamped. And it reminded me of, um, literally, you know, being a foreigner in, uh, in the Netherlands back in the 1980s and 1990s, where you, uh, every so often you'd have to turn up to the, par- to the foreign police to get your, uh, to get your passport stamped and all the rest of it. It was really quite, uh, um, a bit of nostalgia, but not in a good way. Obviously enough, Dave, you would have needed to have everything organized long in advance going to a test like this. You would have made sure that you were booked into the right hotel. You would have made sure you had your car rental all sorted. You would have had to have everything organized in advance. So it's probably a good thing that Neil Morrison wasn't at this test. (laughs) (laughs) Possibly. Yes, possibly. He might might have struggled a little bit to get in. um, uh, I'll tell you what, he really would have paid for booking the the hotel for uh, late because I was wasn't sure whether I was going to go um I you booked my flight and then uh, booked my hotel uh, but I looked at hotels uh, about 3 weeks previously and in those 3 weeks the price of the hotel room had basically doubled so I ended up paying an absolute fortune for um uh, for four nights in a hotel it's uh, it, it it's making me wince just thinking about it I just like to point out that I made it through 
the last two seasons in one piece, <laughs> despite all the COVID restrictions. You know, I'm going to argue my defense here. I'm a changed man, Steve. Okay, well, I'll tell you what, Neil. Let's just look about the test then. Raul Fernandez was 19 fastest, but 19 holds no significance for you during the course of the last couple of weeks. What does that mean? Sorry, 19 hold. <laughs> you, you definitely didn't get COVID nineteen, ah, Neil. Did you over the course okay, of the last nice, few weeks? Smooth. Yeah, sadly I did, Steve. Yeah, I got COVID last uh, last Tuesday, I think. Oh, last Wednesday was my my positive test. Yeah, so um, yeah, finally caught up with me uh, after two years of dodging it and many many scares along the way. Um, but yeah, feeling feeling good. Just have to isolate. I've been isolating at home, and because my flatmate's in, I'm, I have to isolate in my room, which just makes you. Um, a little sad after a couple of days um, but I believe after seven days you're able to go outside um, under current Spanish law seven days from your, po your positive test that means I've just got one day left and I can taste that sweet sweet fresh air again it, that was that was the one thing that everyone was absolutely terrified about in Sepang because there was a separate quarantine hotel. So if you uh, and well, quarantine hotel apparently it was like some wooden barracks somewhere. <laughs> and if you had a uh, a positive test, then you were sent off to the quarantine hotel for seven days, um, and basically weren't allowed to do anything. I think it happened to a, a, one of the photographers out there. Uh, it happened to a couple of the team uh, uh, people in the teams. Um, and just everyone's the, the the look of sheer relief on everyone's faces whenever a whenever they had a test and came back negative. And we were having to do quite a lot of uh, uh, tests. They, they were saying that Ducati was spending uh, something like thirty thousand euros just on PCR testing for uh, the for, for this test and the and the Mandalika test. So it's. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it was stressful and expensive. You have to say, like, the quarantine hotels on a few occasions, whenever people in the World Superbike paddock have had to use them, have been pretty tough experiences for them. So hopefully for the people that were stuck out in Malaysia, it wasn't too bad. Obviously enough, everyone's moved on down to Indonesia now, and it looks like their quarantine hotels aren't too bad, Dave. They're sitting on the beach. They're able to enjoy life down in Indonesia a little bit more. And then, um, Adam, that kind of brings us... On to the Malaysian test as well, because obviously you're on to the Indonesian test as well, because we'll look at Sepang, but it's very easy to read too much into a two-day test in Malaysia. Lots of rubber down. It's easy for everyone to put in some fast times. It's easy for everyone to be fooled. And testing's always a little bit of a, a misleading time this time of year. Hang on, Steve. Just before we get to the test, if you're talking about enjoying life, are you currently out You know, in Spain for a superbike test to play golf? Or are you playing golf just to squeeze in like a superbike test? I mean, what's the priorities here? Well, I'm actually in Portugal now. Ad, oh. So, uh, you know, a totally different experience. Oh, you know, so, just moving around the golf uh, courses then? Yeah, exactly. Just just moving around the courses. You know, a few days here, a few days there. I had a little bit of work to do at the start of the week. Got that done. And then did uh, three days golfing. And I'm now in the, the Algarve Circuit Hotel. So testing's actually going on now as we record this. We need to get this wrapped up quick so I can get up to the track. But uh, then I'll do my couple of days work and then I'll get back home. And I'm not going to lie, 20 degrees, 22 degrees, very little wind, blue skies, sunshine. You know, it's a little bit worse than the weather we're getting at home at the minute. But, you know, is that, you, can't, you can't be perfect all the time. Is that to get to the track via the front nine or the back nine? A <laughs> couple of days. Well, it's, it's via the carton track here in Portimao. <laughs> you know, that's the that's the biggest distraction I'm going to have this week. A couple of days work, Steve. What's that equate to? That's lifting your clubs up and then transporting them to one location <laughs> and then dropping them down and, and then picking them up again. Is that 
Don't forget the bending down to get the ball. <laughs> yeah. It's fucking tough work, lads. I don't know what you boys are doing over the winter, but you've got to make sure that you're you're practicing the same way you're gonna you're gonna compete all the way through the year. And you know, for me that's making sure I'm out on the golf course as much as possible. <laughs> Well, listen, coming back around to your original very eloquent question, Steve, I'm almost loath to kind of put a title on this podcast because, um, you know, what can you possibly read into testing? Um, especially in Sepang where, you know, arguably the first few hours um, are spent for riders blowing off cobwebs, uh, teams frantically stressing about the amount of ideas or, or things they have to verify, uh, some of the some of the solutions or components or whatever they had in the Hareth test at the end of 2021, um, you know, they have to sort of stamp those. Uh, I think KTM in particular were one team that were talking about the, the, the huge amount of work they had to do. And of course, the, the rainfall on the second day that curtailed everything prematurely. Uh, you know, didn't help either. And then uh, MotoGP moves on to a brand new track, which is, uh, like we were saying in the note show with Neil, which is great for somebody like, you know, Michelin to get some crucial data in preparation for the Grand Prix. And of course, gets every, lets everybody have a taste of this brand new venue. But then in terms of finalizing a setup, uh, you know, I mean, Sepang has been um, a great universal indicator, I think you could say, for, you know, a, a large section of the MotoGP calendar in terms of finding setup and, and proving stuff. Uh, and Mandalika, in contrast, is, is a little bit of, uh, you know, grabbing grabbing a ball from from a lottery bowl. It's it's just a mystery. So it's um you know not a great deal to read into it, but there are some interesting stuff. You know, I mean, it was great that Dave was on the ground and you know was able to get a real feel for some of the anxiety, some of the relief, um, you know, some of the general all round emotions and innovations that we saw. So um, it would be good to talk about that at the very least, and just try to ignore the uh, the, the timesheets. Well, Dave, obviously enough for you leading on from what Adam's talking about there that feeling to be back in the paddock and back in pit lane as well for you it was uh, definitely a step back towards uh, a lot more towards normality after the last couple of years so that must have been quite good to get down pit lane and you actually saw quite a lot down in pit lane as well uh, yeah exactly well it, it, it really was quite a busy test there were there was a lot of parts going on there's a lot of testing going on um, uh, obviously, the big thing was the uh, Ducati's front ride height device, which um, I mean, you know, maybe we could talk about a little bit later. But it was—I mean, it was great to actually be in pit lane. I, I went back to pit lane for Jerez. Obviously, race weekends—they haven't been letting people back into pit lane, and I think there's still a discussion about whether journalists are going to be allowed in pit lane during uh, uh, during the race weeks uh, weekends. But we'll we'll have to see. But the, the the testing was great, and there was there really was a lot of testing going on. Um, it varied a lot by uh, factories. Uh, Suzuki, it seemed to me that Suzuki had the best plan, basically. They had sort of a really clearly defined plan and they'd uh, set it all up. Uh, Ducati had a, quite a lot to test, but because they've got eight riders or, well, five riders basically on the same bike, they also managed to get through quite a lot. Um, KTM have two rookies and two experienced riders, and so they were struggling a bit with with the amount of work which for you know Brad Binder and Miguel Oliveira had. Um, and the other things, one of the things they were testing, for example, Yamaha also KTM, uh, they were testing like a, the, the, this new aero package, which is a bit more of a high downforce aero package. But Sepang is a really fast circuit, and so it's really quite difficult to test it takes a lot off the top speed you're testing a package which is supposed to help for with wheelies a track like Jerez rather than a big wide fast track like Sepang so there was there was a lot of that sort of thing 
Dave, do you think that Suzuki, are, they were the most sort of content team that you saw purely because they didn't have all that much to test? Um, I mean, we've also said on the show that Juan Mir, you know, is arguably, you know, the 2020 World Champion, of course, will be looking maybe anxiously at the team and the setup and the motorcycle and thinking, you know, is this somewhere I need to stay for the next couple of years of my career? Um, you know, he's arguably going to be right at the top of the shopping list for most manufacturers and teams. Um, you know, it, it was, it, I mean, if you look at the last time the MotoGP were testing in Sepang in 2020, um, you know, the top speed was, goodness, it was only marginally higher than it was now. Um, and Suzuki were pretty much the same distance away. Alex Rins, I think, was fifth quickest uh, in 2020. Um, you know, Suzuki were 6K down on the Ducatis then, um, you know, and now they're the same thing. It's around about 6, 7K down. So there's there's not been a vast hike, a vast hike in the top speed of GSXR. So it's, I don't know, is, is the Suzuki thing, should we, feel, should we feel as confident as they appear to be? Uh, well, yes, I think, uh, I think so. Um uh, yes, good to point back to 2020, and then remember who actually won the championship in 2020. Um, um, the the impression I got from Suzuki, they had sort of a list of you know they had a new chassis, they had a, they they needed to reconfirm the the new uh, the, the new engine which they bought at, at Jerez and which they'd refined a little bit. Uh, I think they had some suspensions parts, they had some electronics, they had uh, some new aero, and really everything was better. Um, except for the new aero, the, the aero was the only thing that they really weren't very uh, sort of sure about, uh, sure that worked. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, um, Juan Mir, he said really very, very clearly on uh, the Friday at the team presentation, like, this is, you know, it's sort of do or die time, if you like. This, it's make or break. It's if If Suzuki haven't bought enough, then it's this is going to be a really big reason for me to start thinking about moving on. But um, afterwards, on Sunday night, he basically said, um, I, well, I can't say I'm happy, but I'm satisfied. He said he was very satisfied. Everything, you know, the things which Suzuki uh, had bought worked. The engine had more power, which is what they wanted. Um, again, it, it was difficult to tell in terms of top speeds because uh, really, because we lost the, the second half of the last day, that was the day when everyone, everyone, or everyone was going to take either their first or second chance uh, at a time attack, and we would have had a much better idea of, of you know, just how important top speeds are and, and top speeds are going to be. Neil, obviously, enough whenever you hear Mir talking about a threat like that, that you know, if a step isn't made, that he'll move. Is that an empty threat though, as well? Because where is he going to move to? You know, who's who's going to bring him in? Because would Ducati do it? Would Yamaha do it? Obviously, Yamaha have Quattararo up for contract renewal as well. You know, would you move to Honda or KTM? They're not the same package as what you get at the Suzuki. I would say it's uh, it's more than an empty threat. Um, you know, the, the Honda link has been something that um, has been banding around in, in, in pre-season. Um, yeah, I would say Joanne would, would certainly have options on this table. <clears throat> um and um, you know, <clears throat> he basically made that threat at the the last race of last year. So, if Suzuki weren't already working going into the winter, then um, I'm pretty sure those comments there would have done. They've, I think, uh, they've, they've signaled that they would like to to keep their two current riders, Mir and Rins, uh, going into 2023. That's their intention to try and um, sign both of those guys um, to to contracts uh, beyond this year. Um, and you know the, the early signs are good. There were a couple of uh, people I heard saying, 
uh, through the, the two days in Malaysia that if there had to be a race this weekend, Suzuki would be the best equipped to deal with that. They're probably the most race ready of the, the six factories at the moment um, with, with the kind of improvements that they've brought. Um, and, you know, you look at uh, some of the things that they were struggling with last year. Um, obviously, top speed was one. Um, it was very difficult for them to overtake, especially the Ducatis. Qualifying, we've been talking about that for the best part of two years. Um, again, we can't really look too much into the final day of Sepang because rain interrupted play midway through the day. But I was going through the times, and um, in terms of riders lapping in the 1 minute 58s, um, which is, you know, kind of qualifying pace. I mean, Alex Rins did more 1 minute 58s than any other rider um, out there. He did seven, and I think the next highest number was uh, six for Vinales, and then four for Bastianini and Martin uh, apiece. So, you know, Rins was certainly looking pretty good. Mir put in four 1 minute 58s as well. So... Yeah, we can't read too much into it, but certainly in terms of uh, the overall package, it's got a bit more top speed. And one thing that Mir did say is that he doesn't need to be level with the Ducatis. He just needs not to be completely blown out of the water. And I think he was even quite surprised, Dave. You sent on uh, one of his um, his debriefs that he did with you guys there on the ground. And he was looking at the top speed charts and he was kind of incredulous. He was like, well, am I really that fast? Am I really just that far off yep. the, the fastest Ducati? Yeah, I mean, in terms of outright top speed, uh, the, the the fastest speed of the uh, of the second day, then Suzuki was only like three k off, which is uh, acceptable. You know, I mean, like you're never going to be a, a Ducati, uh, but if you can stay in the sl- stay in the slipstream, then th- that's fine. You just don't want to have them blasting past you every time you overtake them. I mean, I don't know about you, but I would say I would always rate Joan Mir's championship potential ahead of Alex Rins, but Rins seems to be able to stitch together the faster lap better. Uh, you know, again, he was the better rider at this test. He was the better rider the last time they tested in, in Zepang. Um, you know, I mean, we, we, we can talk about Alex's Rins' mental state and his, his championship, uh, you know, potential at some other point, but... Um, you know, I just think if Suzuki can get can get out of say Mandalika after three days with some really fast lap times, that might cure their Achilles heel of being so poor in qualification and starting three rows behind Ducatis. I think it was Alex Rinsdaver again in one of your chats with him that you passed on, where he said, you know, what's the point in being half a second um, in the lead coming out of the final turn in Mugello um, if you've got a couple of Ducatis behind you because you're not going to win the race. So there are still inherent issues there, I think, for Suzuki to solve. But just to backtrack um and to go back to the uh the validity or the validity i to say of, uh, of the sepang test since 2010 there's only one rider who's topped the test who's one gone on to win the championship any guesses to the rider and the year david Day is raising raising his hand which on, on a podcast without a video would be uh well you see i made exactly this same list adam so uh <laughs> well let's open so, it to steve and to, to, to neil well, i i was immediately jumping the stoner Rossi? No. But. No. Oh, Mir, you already said it. No. Yeah, Quattararo was fastest thought, in 2020. I... Oh, sorry. Uh, the, no, I don't Mark? know. Mark? It was actually Mark. Mark in 2014. Hmm. So there you go. And actually, Honda had a hot streak uh, for five years in a row. They were the top manufacturer in the Sepang test. And uh, for, for in those five years, there were four different riders. We managed to clock the uh, fastest time. Any guesses? Stoner. Four different Honda riders. Stoner, one. Casey. Pedroza. Mark. Yeah, and one more. 
Bradle? No. Dovi? No. Somewhat ironic, really, that he was fastest in Sepang, considering oh. how oh. uh, how the story would end. Lorenzo. No, hang on. Marco uh, Simoncelli. Oh, yeah. oh, yes, yes, of course. 2011, of all years. And actually, the king of Sepang tests is actually Mark, uh, who was fastest two years in the fateful 2015 and 14. And then Jorge Lorenzo, who managed it with the Ducati and also the Yamaha. But, you know, apart from Quattararo's, you know, magnificent effort in 2020, you know, Ducati had pretty much blasted the test. I mean, I think Petrucci set the outright lap record in 2019. There were four Ducatis in the top five. So uh, Ducati is very much their day, as I think we'll come on to after the break, Steve. Yeah, well, I think uh, it's your day, Adam, for having uh, managed to get the better of all of us with your quiz. <laughs> but uh, we'll take a quick break on the Paddock Mass podcast. And when we come back, as Adam said, we'll chat a little bit more about Ducati. Renthal Street Clip-On Handlebars are premium race-spec clip-ons available in nine different options, two different offsets, and six different diameters all developed in collaboration with top-level race teams. Use the Fit My Bike tool on Renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Renthal Street. Quizmaster Adams just gotten the better of us, but uh, David, obviously enough, you were down in pit lane getting the, getting the better of Ducati as well over the course of the week to see their front right height device. Uh, yeah, indeed. Uh, in fact, I had perhaps my proudest moment in MotoGP, which is that I... Um, uh, because I heard from um, Tom Morsellino that he thought that there was something going on with Ducati. So I went down to have a look. Um, and you could see, uh, basically, Ducati have these fork covers. They're fork lev covers. They're basically like a, a teardrop shape, and they're meant to help with aerodynamics. Um, but they're quite large, and so you can hide stuff behind it. And so they've hidden something behind it. And I wrote about that on Saturday night on the website. And then I went down on Sunday morning and uh, the, the teams had put some uh, black uh, tape over the gap through which I'd spotted their ride height device. So I'm like, yes, this is, uh, th- I've, I've finally arrived. I finally achieved something. Um, so Dave, is GG uh, motomatters.com site supporter? <laughs> uh, uh, or uh, uh, just, just, just goes on to, to get the latest No, no, news? no. I, got, I, um, uh, uh, I give all of the factories a free uh, a, a free subscription to motomatters.com just so that they can uh, read what I have to write about them um, uh, but it's nice to get confirmation that they actually bother um, yeah I mean the, the whole device the, the, the device is quite ingenious and quite it's really difficult to explain because I've been talking to lots of people about it. I had a quick chat with Simon Crayfire about it while we were down there. Um, because for, for Simon, from a rider's perspective, he said he found it difficult to understand because for a rider, that feeling with the front is so important. It's absolutely everything. And if you start messing around with the you know the, the front wheel, the position of the front wheel, so you know the, the, the feeling from the suspension and all the rest of it, then that would be. He thought that that would be uh, quite upsetting. So we're wondering if is you know could it be something to do with triggering the rear ride height device or, or managing the rear, the rear ride height device. But Hazard um, and uh, Crick, one of our um, uh, one of the local Malaysian photographers and a, a, a you know really nice guy, um, 
Uh, he got a whole bunch of photographs from our friend Pete McLaren of Crash.net also uh, actually put together quite a nice little sort of story where you can actually see the thing operating. And what seems to be happening is that um, Ducati, so behind the, the fork leg, what they have is a little hydraulic cylinder. And uh, what's happening is that's connected to the, the bottom of the fork leg. And what's happening is that uh, on corner exit, once it's activated, you're getting a sort of an extra bit of uh, rebound damping. So it's slowing the return of the front fork. Um, what that does is on corner exit, it keeps the front of the bike lower. Uh, now, the front... The front feeling for the ride is really important all the way into the corner. Uh, and then you, uh, when you release the brake, the, the, the fork comes back up again. I was talking to Peter Baum about, about this earlier. And obviously, you know, he knows how a bike goes into a corner because he's seen the data. As a crew chief, he understands it. He was saying that basically on corner entry, you've got the, the fork fully compressed on the brakes. And then you release the brakes and it comes back a little bit. Uh, um but it still stays quite low because you're going through the corner and there's a lot of force through the forks, sort of keeping the uh, keeping the forks compressed. Uh, and it only really releases once you crack the throttle. Um, as soon as you crack the throttle, then the front will come up a little bit. And that's the point where it might be actually quite good to keep the front down because you at that point, you might lose a little bit of acceleration because you'd have to open the throttle slightly differently. But as soon as you start to pick the bike up, the front of the bike is lower. And so you can accelerate a lot harder, a lot earlier. Um, it's, I mean, it, it looks quite ingenious, quite difficult. It's connected to the rear ride height device. So the rider is pressing one button and activating the ride height devices at both ends. Um, and it, if it is like we think, just you know, this basically some extra rebound damping, it would automatically disengage as you go along. Uh, you know, as you go along the straight, you're accelerating. The front wheel will start to extend again, but you've got the front wheel almost uh, off the ground for a lot of the a lot of the front uh, the, the the front straight anyway. So it's uh, it's a really intriguing piece of um, technology. It's uh, quite complex. Uh, and you would think it would add extra weight, but the advantage is that extra acceleration must outweigh it. Um, it got passed around the various riders, all of the all of the various people on factory Ducatis. Uh, so whether we'll actually see it raced or not is another question. Um, but yeah, it, it seems to be tested quite successfully. And, and the riders weren't really, they, they didn't really want to say a great deal about it. They only said, yeah, yeah, yeah we're playing around with something. You just think it was something with that, Dave, just the issues that arise when you when you bolt it on the bike. I mean, in terms of the rider, the, the feeling of the handling. I mean, you assume as well that the, the potential performance gains are going to be negligible because if you're going through, it's only going to work on a couple of corners where you're getting an advantage out onto, a, say, a straight or whatever else. If you're into an, a series of S's or a you know a tight kink, then it's, it's worthless. But then also, if you consider things, if you consider things like chassis flex, uh, you know, and various levels of stiffness. Um, I mean, it's interesting that it opens up more potential for the suspension companies to get involved in in kind of marginal gains. Um, but also just, I would be very cautious on the rate of failure. You know, if the system goes wrong, um, you know, what happens then? I mean, that also could explain perhaps why some of the Japanese are being very conservative in, in plowing a path of development like this, that Ducati are, are, you know, far more adventurous, you could say. But 
I am, you know, you just kind of cross your fingers and hope that that doesn't go badly for a rider because riding with a, uh, or racing with a kind of a low ride Ducati, I imagine wouldn't be rather, wouldn't be most pleasant for 25 laps. Uh, well, I mean, the thing about the, uh, the thing about the ride height devices is they're only used uh, a couple of times a lap anyway. Uh, so th the way that the Ducati and Aprilia and I think the KTM uh, uh, system as well, the way that you actually apply it is you press a button before corner entry, before the corner you want to use it on exit. Uh, so you engage the system, which sort of uh, like cocks it, if you like, or it charges it. Um, and then on corner exit, it automatically engages. Um, so th sort of that level of complexity is already gone. You're not using it every corner. So, you know, in like fast changes of direction, you've just got a normal motorbike. You, do, you don't have to worry about anything particularly complicated. Uh, on a... On the corners where you're using it, because, I mean, the complexity of actually installing it is quite difficult, I think. But and also it's, uh, you know, a, a, a an extra damping cylinder is, I mean, if I had to guess, I don't know, maybe a kilo, less than a kilo. And it's a bit of it's weight where you don't really want it on the forks. Really, you want it. Um, you want, you know, weight as, as in the middle of the bike as much as possible. Uh but the it is just the damping cylinder, so it's not in terms of mechanical failure. It's not terribly bad, and the worst thing that happens is you've got some extra rebound damping. But it, that's the sort of thing that you could actually get your head around uh, if you had to. It would slow you down, but it would still be rideable. I think the rear ride height device would be much much worse if that failed, because then you you know you've got the uh, uh, like a low rear all of the time. But if you think about it, how many times have we seen the rear ride height devi devices fail? Throughout uh, uh, throughout the season, I don't I don't think we've had a single failure. So I think these things are pretty reliable. And, and like I say, actually getting them to engage and all the rest of it—that's the difficult part. The, the devices themselves are relatively simple because it's just it's just a damping unit. It's just a, you know there are damping units all over. You know there's a there's a steering damper. There's a, the suspension da damper. So it, but it's it, like it's you said no earlier, technology. front end feel is everything. Yeah. And um, the road, the rear ride height device has had over two seasons of development. So it's it's good that we haven't really seen any failure or you know any kind of very public. I mean there might have been an issue in FP1 or FP2 that we don't know about, but you know there's been no obvious signs of. Uh, I think. Uh, um, uh, I think Morbidelli at one of the Qatar races said that he got his uh, his ride height devices. Um, uh, but I think again that was one of the early versions of the uh, uh, of the Yamaha or uh, the Yamaha. Was last year. That was last year. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But since that, that is that's the only one that I can remember off the top of my head. Obviously enough, David, for Ducati, we did see them very strong all the way through the test. Bastianini is setting the pace. We also saw Jorge Martin very fast. Peco was up in sixth fastest. Miller a little bit further down the times. It looks like Ducati's made another step. This obviously being one of the areas where they're going to try and focus on. But uh, Neil, when you look at what we've seen from Ducati last season, they <coughs> finished it so strong and now they're setting up to be really good once again this year. Yeah, yeah, they are, Steve. Um, and I don't think the, the guys on the GP22s have really showed their hands yet. I mean, that does seem to be a bike that's still got a lot more uh, running to go before it's up to its its kind of full potential. Um, you know, the the factory guys plus Jorge Martin were saying that basically 
the 21 bike was the the better package at Sepang, but that's just because it basically had two years essentially of, of development put into it. Um, and it was kind of, you know, towards the end of its life cycle, whereas this GP2022, they're all convinced has more potential. And uh, once they just get things kind of sorted out with it, um, then it will be a, a, a definitely a more formidable package, which I think is, is, is quite ominous really for the rest of the grid. Um, because even by the second day, I mean, you just look at the, the timing sheets and, um, you know, the second day of running and these guys were still complaining of quite a few issues with the 2022 bike. You know, Martin was third, Banyaya was sixth, both of them less than uh, two tenths off the fastest time of the test. Um, so yeah, you would say that, um, when they sort out the issues, I mean, they were all complaining of, um, that the throttle being a bit too aggressive in the first touch of the throttle, um, they didn't have that sort of dialed in, but they were all pretty convinced that, um, with some work on the electronics and getting the electronics synced up to the character of the new engine, um, then, uh, you know, that wouldn't be a problem anymore. Um, I think that the bike is a little bit faster, has more top speed. Um, you know, they're playing around with this front ride height device as well, which has the potential to give them um, extra acceleration on, on, you know, two or three corners of track. Um, so, yeah, I would say that uh, we certainly haven't seen anywhere near <clears throat> the full potential of the, the 22 bikes from Ducati so far. But early signs indicate that, um, you know, when we get to Qatar, that will still be the package to beat. The the thing about the, you know, new packages, there was a common theme amongst a lot of riders, which was, you know, the 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 new bike is more or less the same level as the old bike, but the old bike, you know, we'd reached the limit. We, you know, it was maxed out. And so there's more potential in the new bike. KTM was saying that as, uh, as well. Uh, Yamaha was saying that to a certain extent. So there's uh, there is the feeling that the old bikes are, pretty much done and uh the, the the new the new bikes is you know there's much more to come from them i think also just with regards to the riders in the factory team you know jack miller dominated the preseason testing last year and he said at one point during the test he was like well what fucking good did it do me i came away from qatar with two pretty <laughs> crap results um you know testing doesn't mean any, everything um and you know, we always know that, but I think for a rider to get that into the, the old noggin takes um, a bit more maturity, a bit more experience. Um, you know, and Jack's approach wasn't, you know, he wasn't setting the fastest lap times by any stretch, but he seemed very confident. I don't think he engaged, I think he maybe did one time attack on Sunday morning, but that was it. Um, you know, and he said something along the lines of, uh, we need to have the best bike when Qatar rolls around, not the best bike at this first test. Uh, and he's pretty convinced that they're well on their way to having that best bike for, for the Qatar race. So, um, yeah, it's, um, uh, it's interesting that, you know, they haven't, they haven't stood still. You could argue that they had the right to stand still and, and, and go with what they had at the end of last year. <clears throat> but, um, you know, they've kept plowing forward and, um, yeah, thinking of, five guys on that bike this year um i mean that's uh, that's quite scary plus bastianini on uh, the 21 looking as strong as he is looking at, at the moment you know ducati have a real fleet on their hands that um i think the others will real, really struggle to get on top of yeah it's a fair point neil because um you know i also think jack miller as ever is is good value um you know in his comments and you know he was obviously making the the, the contrast between the 21 and the 22 bikes and I, I like Bastianini's, um, you know, again, coming back to the real purpose of the Sepang test, 
maybe you know forgetting the technical part for the moment just on rider confidence and rider feeling you know i like bastianini's kind of uh exuberance if you like in you know i think he mentioned more than once that he was going for a place on the factory team uh for 2023 and uh you know i imagine that had a few people smiling in the whole jacati structure um how that would be arranged because city season you know is arguably going to be as much debate as it as you know any kind of event coming out of the test um both what we saw in malaysia and in indonesia so uh i, I you know is, is bastianini really going to be you know a force in MotoGP gp this year i mean you'd think with the motorcycle he has now and one more year of experience is there's there's a real possibility yeah well i think that the one thing that i've always found interesting about bastianini is that when you talk to all the riders that he's gone up against in the smaller classes moto 3 moto 2 they all raved about him and they expected him to adapt well to moto gp bike obviously last year we saw some really strong performances and we saw that he was able to come through strong during the course of races now it's up to him to make that next step he's obviously got a better bike this year we'll see how he works with the grassini team it looks good from the test and now it's up to him to try and carry that forward into the indonesian test and i think that that test is going to be really indicative of what we can expect going forward as well because that's a brand new track for everyone there's no real data obviously some of the manufacturers are able to look at some of the stuff that they're able to take from a superbike going around that track but even then when we went there in november the place was still getting finished it was absolutely brand new the surface was really good because it was brand new let's wait and see how it is six months after it's been laid to see if the grip's still really good how that's going to work for MotoGP. but i think this test was really good just to see a rider come in full of confidence and like you said i'd he's put his colors to the mast he wants to make sure that he's in the discussion for a, a seat further up on the ducati table for next year obviously david with ducati you get pramac you get the factory teams there's always going to be options and there could be changes made at Ducati for next year. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of people. Well, put it this way, uh, uh, I believe that Pekka Banyai is uh, pretty close to signing a new contract. It, likely, his contract will the contract extension will be uh, announced before the start of the season. Everyone was very happy with him. Um, uh, uh, you know, Jorge Martin, obviously, the, the, he's loads and loads of potential, and if he can. Uh, stay in one piece, then that becomes really quite important. Um, then there's, you know, Joan Zarco and uh, Jack Miller, and we have to see what he can do. Bastianini really wants a place in there, and you could easily, you know, make a case for him giving him a, uh, a factory bike. But I mean, the thing about him, top of the timesheet, is he is on a known package, you know, like he is on a package where they know everything about it. So he doesn't have anything to test other than getting used to the bike, sorting out a decent setup for which there's tons and tons and tons of data. So that makes it a little bit easier. Um, so it, it is easier for him to set a fast time. And I think we're going to see, because we've seen this before in years gone by as well uh, with satellite bikes, they start off well, um, but as the season goes on, they get further and further behind as the, as the factory bikes develop. We're going to finish off today's show by talking about, you know, who, really impressed us and who was the the big talking points in that test and uh just before we go to our ad break i'm going to start with you but who of a factory or a rider did you find was the most interesting to keep track of during the course of this test what was the one storyline that you were looking at and thinking you know what if Qatar was tomorrow that's the rider or that's the team i'd be keeping an eye on goodness i i, I just like how it's so 
crazy around Yamaha. I mean, you know, after the 2021, which was ridiculous as a season where they, they win the world championship, but then have all sorts of, you know, rider and team you know, employment issues or whatever. Um, you know, they come to this test where, you know, it's very clear that Fabio Quartararo has a demand when it comes to the top speed of the bike. Um, you know, they still have a rider of Cal Crutchlow's capabilities able to give some feedback. And he was actually one of the better performers. Um, you have a rider with the sheer experience of someone like Andrea De Vizioso looking rather glum by the end of the second day. Uh, you know, they have a, a, a rookie that you, you know, has a lot of question marks floating around his head in the form of Darren Binder. Um, it's such a strange cooking pot of ingredients. Um, and I don't think, you know, Yamaha came away from that test with any kind of uh, positive vibes. You know, I don't think there was a great deal of, um, uh, you know, may maybe extra motivation, you could say. But, the, you know, people seem to be talking about them for the wrong reasons rather than the right reasons. So, you know, that was one of the more curious stories I felt, Steve. But then you could also look at somebody like Aprilia with a top speed. Um, of course, they were testing extra days as well. They had more knowledge. They had more kind of, like Dave said earlier, with the, the GP21, there's there's a whole kind of base there they were able to get as an advantage over the other teams. Um, it was such a shame it was only a day and a half. I think, you know, that was one of the big underlying factors from, from, from Malaysia. But uh, yeah, what's happening with Yamaha? Still big question mark. Um, Aprilia, is this the real deal? Is that motorcycle finally in a place where it's going to win a Grand Prix? So those were two of the, the kind of narratives that I picked up. Yeah, I think the Yamaha thing is, is very interesting. Heavy uh, shades of Suzuki last year in that, obviously, Suzuki kind of stood still uh, for the most part of uh, 2021, their championship defense, and Mir ultimately wasn't able to defend his crown with any of the kind of... Uh, aggression that he had uh, envisioned and um you know i don't think it's it's totally terrible for fabio he was still fast um he was still consistent his pace was was pretty good um he was doing really strong times in the low one minute 59s with really used tires i think he did a 159 four uh, on the final day with uh, a rear tire that had already done 21 22 laps and that's basically a full race distance um, he says that the front end of the bike is still fantastic. The braking capabilities of the bike are still excellent, but it hasn't taken really a step forward compared to last year. And I thought it was interesting on Sunday, uh, Quadraro was asked, what did you test today? And he said, well, and there was a couple of dramatic pauses, I think thrown in for a bit of uh, a bit of humor, but it was like, well, there was a new chassis <laughs> And <laughs> I was thinking, is he doing my this testing helmet? Don't don't forget my <laughs> testing helmet. Look great. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, new leathers. Um, but that was it. Like a, a new chassis, and you think, well, that's considering the the issues that Yamaha had in the last couple of races. Um, you really do think that uh, they would have tried to bring some more new parts, and it does seem that the package is very, very, very similar to 2021. Quadraro, I still think, can do fantastic things on it, but he made a comment, I think, to the journalists at the track that he's going to have to be in the red to be up there fighting. And can you arguably win a world championship when you're having to push beyond the limit every single weekend? I mean, that's a, it's going to be a big, big ask for him, I think. Um, ask Ask Mark Marquez. Yeah, not, a, not, not everyone's a Mark Marquez, though, Dave. I, I have to say, for me, one of the most interesting things was KTM. And it was interesting just because, you know, Oliver and Binder finished 15th and 18th fastest. Obviously, they've got their rookies further down, Gardner with his injury. 
But we actually had a question from Paul McMullen about this and uh, he was speaking about how KTM were really good at the start of last season, lost their way in the middle of the campaign and what do they need to do to to get themselves back to the front. And David, it was interesting when you were talking to the KTM riders over the course of the weekend in the debriefs, the one thing that kept cropping up was we've made a big improvement but it was always where we're still in the same position. It's that when the back-to-back things, they said lap times were similar, but feelings were very different. So they feel that they can make a big step forward. But until KTM make that big step forward, it is that question mark hanging over that team. Obviously, they've made a lot of changes for this winter as well. Yeah, I mean, well, as you say, like the the big thing that the the KTMs were saying was uh, it was a a pretty... They felt that they were at the level... With last year, the same level as last year's bike, um, but last year's bike was maxed out, and this year there's much more potential. Uh, neither of them really got a chance to take a uh, you, you, to set a fast lap time, so you can't really see. Um, someone also pointed out to Brad Binder um, if he remembered where he was at the uh, at the end of the 2020 test in Zapang. Uh, and he was 18th and he went on to um, uh, have a pretty decent rookie season really in uh, uh, in 2020 with uh, with uh, you know w- with a winner Bruno so yeah i i think there is much more like i said it's really difficult to say anything specifically about the results from this test because it was really just a day and a half and apart from Aprilia who had all of that extra time the bikes and the riders really weren't at the end of the... Uh, they're not anywhere near their their final level of performance. Yeah, we've kind of covered most of the ground now about each of the manufacturers. A little bit to talk about with Honda after the break, and then we'll recap just with our quick winners and losers from the week as well, and that'll bring us to a close on this look back at the Sepang test. So we'll take a quick ad break now on the Paddock Pass podcast. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Renthal Street. And David, like I said, just before we went to the ad break, we haven't really talked too much about Honda. Honda were radically different during the course of this test. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was a completely different bike. I mean, it's a completely different bike from the bike which turned up um, from last year's. It's, they've clearly made some steps with the bike that they tested at Misano and Jerez last year. It looked much more like a finished product. They also had two different chassis there. Uh, they had, um, uh, I mean, at Misano and at uh, Jerez, uh, all of the bikes had uh, an exhaust valve, basically like a back pressure valve on the uh, on the end of the exhaust, which is one of the things you use to control engine torque. Uh, that had gone, so obviously they felt uh, much better. The riders felt that the engine that they'd made an engine uh, step with the engine as well. There was a bit more torque in the engine, which is which is very much what they uh, what they wanted. Um, Mark struggled because the the concept of the bike is the opposite well no the opposite is wrong it's different to it's radically different to what it was before before the what the honda did was um you could um wait 
until you saw God and then uh, apply the brakes um, and turn the thing into the corners and the front would just grip forever. Um, that was what Mark wanted from it. That suits Mark's riding style. This, the trouble was he had to sacrifice too much rear grip and that was causing lots of problems with uh, sliding, with, um, uh, you know, high sides and that sort of thing. But they've changed it, changed the balance of the bike to give it a lot, lot more rear grip. Uh, but that means sacrificing front grip. And especially on Saturday, uh, Mark was saying that he was crashing over the front because uh, he was trying to do the same things on on the new bike uh, as he was doing on the old bike. And the new bike simply won't do that. So he's having to get his head around it. I think he was still sort of having struggling with a lack of fitness because he hasn't been able to ride uh, ride motorbikes, basically. Uh, so by the I think he did pretty well to, um, I think he was sort of secretly happy that he didn't get to ride a great deal on the second uh, on the second day because it allowed him to recover a little bit. But he needs to he needs to ride a lot more to get his uh, uh, to get his strength back up again. But the, the Honda looks good. I mean, look, all of the riders looked quite good. They looked quite fast. You said the Honda looks good, Dave. We're recording this on Tuesday. Uh mid afternoon oh sorry uh yeah noon time and uh, the honda you'll be surprised to learn is still orange white and red just that <laughs> had the 2022 colors revealed uh, yeah but it looks I, I had a quick glance and it does look a little bit different it looks more different than the yamaha certainly and it looks more different uh, the, than the ducati i mean you know like the yamaha uh, livery was pretty much identical um uh, the ducati one was almost identical there was some sort of you know very mild color changes uh the so far i mean for me suzuki wins uh, because the I, I love that little black bit about uh, around the numbers um i think it adds it sort of brings out the rest of the bike more but uh yeah the the livery is not nearly as radical an update as the uh, as the bike itself exactly yeah because i was speaking to someone at honda and they said if you take a, the years when the sort of technical rules or the, the displacement of the class was changed in the four-stroke era. So 990 to 800 or 800 to 1,000, if you take those years out, this is pretty much the biggest change that Honda's made in its bike from one year to the next in the entire four-stroke era. So it's that's quite radical. Um, and I think it was interesting also just the fact that basically all four riders were on the same package here. You think back to Jerez last year when Paul Espargaro had that kind of minor hissy fit and was... Uh, bemoaning Honda's working methods and he was right to an extent because at the rest last year I think you had all four Honda riders on kind of different variations of of the package and it was like how are we supposed to give united feedback on what the problems are here when we're all fighting our own battles it seems that everyone you know is kind of singing from the same hymn book now um, which can only be a help for a completely new package and um, one of the things that st stood out for me one of the comments was Mark said having to get my head around things. But anytime I tried to push, the lap time was there. And I think that is, uh, that's quite ominous for the rest of the field. Also, uh, Neil, I think, you know, you pointed out on our, our note show, you know, which we publish on Patreon, like right after the event. So if anybody wants to get sort of super exclusive stuff straight away, then head over to that channel. Um, you know, Alex Marquez was also sending some very tidy kind of um, race pace as well with the bike. So maybe it is a slightly more user-friendly, which Honda needed, but like as both you and Dave have said, you know, radical change does tend to bring a period of uncertainty in transition. I mean, the chances that Honda have hit the ball out of the park straight away are going to be pretty slim. Um, and when you have a rider of the the natural talent that Mark Marquez has saying he has to adapt his style, 
I just wonder whether that's a good thing or it's it could potentially be a disastrous thing because Mark has really much kept HRC in the game by himself for how many years? Yeah, but it's a self it's the self reinforcing cycle. Every time you give Mark what he wants, then uh, you're taking the bike further away from the rest of them. But what was really interesting was um, there was only one twenty twenty one bike in the uh, uh, at the uh, in all of the Honda garages, and that was in Mark's garage. He went out on it briefly, and obviously he went out on it. I think on his first run, basically just to like get back to speed again. Um, all of the rest of the bikes there in in both garages, the LCR garage and the Repsol garage, were all uh, the 2022 spec bikes. Uh, Takanakagami had both uh, had both spec frames. Paul obviously tried both spec frames. There was much more of a spread of testing load over the uh, uh, over all four riders it felt much more like a uh, like a shared uh, uh, pursuit sort of thing now i don't know honda have historically always made you know tailor made chassis for particular riders uh, so uh, it wouldn't surprise me if they ended up with you know sort of maybe two or three different versions uh, for different riders and mark ends up on a separate uh, on a separate chassis um but it does feel much more like okay we're all here we're all in one place Place and we have to go forward from from this starting point because it's a new starting point. Yeah, obviously enough as well, David. One of the most interesting things for this week was that we did see the lap record broken in Sepang. We've already mentioned it earlier on to top of the show, but you had a good chat with Michelin and they were actually expecting an awful lot more in the afternoon if we hadn't had the rain. So it looks like yeah, the times are very close as they are right now for single lap pace. But there was quite a bit of margin there as well. I know that even for Bastianini with his fastest time, he could have gone another couple of tenths faster on his ideal time. And there's a lot of riders that will be able to think something like that as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, I went in to see Piero Taramasso and he basically said, oh, yeah, we'll be doing 57s. No, uh, no problem. Um, I think there was a couple of riders who thought we were going to see sort of mid 57s. So there was a really big, uh, there was a big leap. And if if the rain hadn't come, then maybe, maybe we hadn't. Um, Michelin were testing a new rear tire with um which has a sort of slightly better warm-up performance it's how they tested last year uh this tire probably won't be um, uh, introduced until 2023 um but basically it will warm up fast it'll last better it's more uh, it's more predictable uh i also asked about the, the 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 front tire because there's been talk of them introducing a front tire um but the trouble is, I mean, the original plan was that it would be introduced, it would be tested in 2020 and introduced in 2021. But what's happened is uh, the, basically, the bikes have changed so much due to COVID. Uh, there was the engine freeze. Um, we've had the ride height devices. We've had aerodynamics changes. And that's changed the way that the bikes behave and what they ask from a, from a front tire. So they've had to, uh, uh, they're going to need much more extensive testing for the uh, for this brand new front tire at a number of tracks. And so we're not going to see that one until 2024. So that means um, there is change down the road, but it's going to take a while. Obviously enough, we said that we were going to do our usual winners and losers from the course of of a weekend. And uh, Neil, day and a half of running in Malaysia. Who was your big winner? Um, I guess we have we've touched on them so far, Steve. But I'm going to say Aprilia just because they had a really uh, good test. I know that um, obviously um, they were uh, beneficiaries of the shakedown test, the only factory that still has concessions. So they're two factory men. Um, Alice Spargo and Maverick Finellas were able to do some running in that uh, in that shakedown, um, but uh, they were one and two, I think, on the first day of the official test, and then ended uh, both inside the top five um, on the Sunday. 
uh, alleged second. He was also under the uh, the three-year-old um, outright circuit record, along with uh, Bastianini. Vinales was fifth. Um, and, you know, the bike does seem to be um, a, an improvement again on uh, what they had last year. Uh, I think it's a bit more agile. It's certainly narrower. Um, and uh, Spargaro commented that when he first sat on, sat on it at the team launch, um, or sorry, it wasn't the team launch, it was when they were doing their photo shoots, he thought, God, this is like a Moto2 bike. Um, he said that, uh, yeah, the turn is really good, although it does bring a little bit of chatter. Something that they need to uh, they need to sort out. I think the top speed is also uh, much improved. And um, yeah, you look at the, the consistency. Both Aspargaro and Vinales were. I think there were two of the four guys on Sunday that did longer runs, along with Paul Aspargaro and Alex Marquez. And um, yeah, they looked really competitive. Aspargaro um, over a longer run, in particular, looked very very good indeed. Um, so yeah, I think there's there's lots to be positive about for Aprilia. There was a bit of a danger, I think, towards the end of last year that that really strong first half of the season was just fading away slightly. They lost their momentum in the last couple of races. Um, but on the basis of this test, uh, I know it's still very early days, but on the basis of this test, you would say that Aprilia are at least where they were, you know, in the first part of last season, which was, you know, regularly knocking on the door of the top six, maybe occasionally having podium potential. What about you, Ad? Big winner from the weekend. Uh, I'm going to have to say, Steve, I will go for Pekka Bagnaya purely because um, he kind of oozes confidence. I mean, it's going to be his fourth season in the class or third? Fourth. Third? Fourth. Yeah, fourth season in the class. Um, he's going to be many people's tip for the title, I think. Um, you know, he's in the best place in his career so far. Like Dave mentioned earlier, there's rumors of, um, you know, a new contract almost being inked. So he'll be the first sort of piece of the chess chessboard in place fixed. Um, and aside from that, I'll just pick his countryman, Marco Bezzecchi, because uh, he was uh, on combined times the fastest of the rookies. And the rookies in itself, I think, is going to be a really interesting subplot to MotoGP this year. Of course, you know, as we said at the start of the show, times mean uh, fuck all. But, uh, you know, Bezzecchi seems to be getting his hand, you know, in the MotoGP game straight away. So it's, um, you know, keep a watch on that one. Yeah, I'm actually going with the rookies as my winners from the week just because they managed to get few laps in the wet and important for them to get that bit of track time in in the wet Michelin tires understand just how different the character of those tires is compared to the Dunlops that would have been on in Moto2 so I thought for the rookies it was really important to be able to get that little bit of running and uh, it, it, might, it might make all the difference if we end up having a wet race you don't want it to be like it was for I think Alex Marquez the first time he was out in the wet track was pretty much during the course of a race so you don't want that obviously it worked out quite well for for Alex in, in, in that case but you certainly want to be able to have your little bit of knowledge going into something like that but Dave what about you who was your big winner? Uh, let me just go back to the points that um, uh, Adam Neil said um, uh, first uh, about Peko, uh, yeah, the, the impression that I got from Ducati people is that, yeah, they're expecting Peko to win the championship this year. So no pressure. Um, <laughs> and Aprilia are really interesting. Also, just because of Maverick Vinales, you can't underestimate the fact that they now have two really strong, equally strong riders. Both Vinales and Alessio Sparger were very, very good. So, yeah, looking forward to that. But my, uh, I think I've got like a, a sleeper rather than a winner, and that's Suzuki, because the Suzuki looks really good. It looks really well developed. Uh, the riders are uh, very good. Shuan Mir looked like he's ready to win again. 
Um, the bike has been improved in the places that it needs to be. It, it's still, you know, they still need some help over a one lap pace. But I think uh, uh, I, I think that it's going to be good enough for them to actually battle with them. Um, and it's got with a the good paint job. And it's got a good paint job. What more could you want? So, yeah, that's for me. Yeah, Suzuki. I, I really think that Suzuki are going to be a bit special this year. And uh, obviously, Dave, where there's winners, there's losers. We'll start off with you for the losers. Who was your, your loser of the weekend? My loser for the weekend, I'm afraid, is Andrea Dovizioso. Uh, I know this is going to break Neil's heart um, uh, because he's a big... Neil has left the chat, actually, it looks like. <laughs> yeah, that's unfortunate. Neil's now left the Paddock Mass podcast entirely. Yeah, yes, yeah. Well, I, I and it's... left the MotoGP Paddock <laughs> for fear of, of seeing Dovi struggle. Uh, yeah, uh, genuinely... There's so many things that um, his style doesn't suit. The Yamaha, the Yamaha doesn't give him what he needs. Um, the Yamaha doesn't really have the sort of the, the horsepower to make up for it. Um, <laughs> he's still struggling with the rear uh, rear carcass. It's a big, big. It's a massive change from from Ducati to Yamaha, um, and. Yeah, Dovi is really taking it. He's really struggling to actually get up to speed, and I think uh, he's going to. I think he's in for a tough year unless he can get it. Sort of, you know, wrap his head around the whole thing. Ad, what about you? Who was your loser from the week? I'm going to have to go for Alessia Spargaro's social media manager. <laughs> um, <laughs> in fact, you know, I think after his endeavours, also, you know, with Alessia's arrival in Indonesia, then this guy is definitely looking for another job. And uh, Neil, what about you? <laughs> Can't really argue uh, with that. That's like uh, being asked to headline the main stage after Jimi Hendrix. Well, uh, Adam <laughs> just gave there. Uh, I'll go with uh, with KTM. I don't think um, I don't think the situation is anywhere near as bad as the time seat sheets um, suggest. You know, Miguel Oliveira, the top KTM in fifteenth. It doesn't look great. Um, Brad Binder in eighteenth, um, but it does seem that they they you know Binder was talking about very specifically where he wants the bike to improve at the. Um, the, the, the team presentation and um he was complaining of exactly the same thing um at the test which was basically losing um a lot of time uh, in the low gears coming out of, of quite slow corners um and it seems that ktm still isn't quite hooking up in terms of traction um where their rivals are um but i still think that you know ktm obviously came into the test with a bit of a different approach to previous years in previous years it was just throw a million different components and new parts at the problem um and it does seem that they've they've kind of earmarked two or three areas of last year's package and they're just trying to work on those kind of methodically and it seems that their their kind of new head um that they uh, got from Jacadi uh, might be um, uh, one of the reasons why they've they've kind of adopted that approach. So I do think that you know we will see KTM strong this year, but just at at the moment it does look like they're they're still having a few difficulties, and maybe the first couple of races we won't see those guys up towards the front. The the one thing about that lack of rear grip is that both Miguel Oliveira and Brad Binder said that it wasn't mechanical it was software so it's something that could be fixed with electronics and if it if you're lacking mechanical grip then you're in much much worse position than uh, electronics because you know the electronics you can actually work relatively quickly to fix yep and you just think last year ktm were in the shit at that preseason test in qatar and we thought oh god you know the the arse has fallen out of it yet come mugello Oliveira was on the podium um, so, you know, I, I'm convinced that they have the riders and also the sort of technical expertise to, to 
turn this into a podium package again, maybe within half a season. But I do think that the first part of the season might be a bit of a struggle. Yeah, I think doubts over consistency. I think what they really want with the RC16 is consistent performance. I mean, that might be something they still struggle to get this year. But, uh, you know, as we saw last year, it was so hit and miss in, in certain venues. Um, we'll, we'll get a better indication, I think, even after Qatar. Yeah, I think for uh, for me, it's uh, probably actually Jack Miller that was my big loser from the week. And nothing really down to the times or anything like that. It's just the fact that Ducati have so many impressive riders on the bike right now. It means that those first few rounds of the year, Qatar, the other flyaways, until we get to Hareth, Miller's going to need to win races. He's going to need to show Ducati, you need to keep me on the factory bike next year because otherwise you've got all the buzz about the likes of Jorge Martin coming through. So I think Miller's the man under pressure because <clears throat> they're not going to replace Peco. Peco finished last year so strong, second in the World Championship, and he's Italian. So he's got all that going for him. I think Miller's the man that's that's under the most pressure heading into these few rounds. And that's where it's interesting to compare Miller to someone like Rins because Rins is under the same pressure. And that's why, you know, being fast in the test, being strong in the first five, six races of the year is crucial for Rins because Suzuki's going to be going out, making sure that they keep Mir happy, making sure they keep him on the bike. So Rins has the same amount of time to be able to try and make sure he holds on to his factory seat while the priority is to shore up the other seat. Jack's in a slightly different position where there's only going to be one factory Ducati seat that Ducati are going to be paying attention to for making sure that they've got the right rider on for next year. And that puts all the pressure on him. Steve, where do you reckon he could possibly fit in, you know, somewhere else in the paddock? You can't see him doing HRC again. I mean, uh, you'd imagine that bridge is probably not in the the best state. Uh, You know, if he does get ejected, do you think there'll be a brand or a team thinking, right, let's try and get some of that Ducati information and data for our own project? Well, obviously enough, Miller did all the the major test work on the ride height device. He was always trusted by Ducati. But it's a strange situation, the the rider market that we have right now, because, you know, it's a bit like what I, I said about Mir earlier on. Is it an empty threat to say that he's going to leave Suzuki? He might well want to leave Suzuki, but himself and Quattararo aren't going to have that many better options on the table than what they're currently on so while everyone might threaten off a lot their managers might be saying oh no we can get more money from such and such it mightn't be a case of that it's actually a better bike or package for you so miller might end up in a situation where he could end up being demoted back towards pramac or something like that because he's still valued by ducati he could still get a decent wage and it's probably still going to be the most competitive bike he's going to be able to get on like at the end of the day the ducati looks to be the best bike on the grid again you know, until you know, Neil, you had Aprilia down as your winners from this weekend. But how many times have we seen Aprilia strong in test? And how many times have we seen Aprilia put in a soft tire in FP3 and think they were going to win the race? So until Aprilia actually back things up, that's not a real legitimate option. KTM, like you said, is you know down the field right now, needing to make that step forward. So you are limiting where riders really are able to go does anyone want to jump on a honda didn't work out too well for lorenzo paul's on the bike at the minute you know honda might be making a load of changes but until we see a rider other than mark marquez able to do really well on it that may not be the most attractive seat either so i think a lot of teams a lot of riders are going to end up staying where they are just by circumstances as much as anything else 
And then obviously enough, we've got Top Rack coming in as well. You know, he's been confirmed for his test. So uh, that could be one of the Yamaha seats gone as well. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the course of the next few weeks. And David, that's where the Indonesian test is going to be really important. Obviously, Malaysia was a day and a half of dry running. We've got three days in Indonesia. And uh, those three days are going to be really crucial. Yeah, I mean, uh, the it's not really three days, you know, because it's one day of, of familiarizing the track and figuring stuff out. And also uh, they will be testing tires for Michelin. Michelin have bought, uh, based on the data and analyzing the track, what they think are going to be the best tires. But there's a selection, so they're still going to have to work that out. Um, uh, the bikes are going to need setting up. Uh, fortunately, Steve, World Superbikes has been there already. And um, I think I, I think it was Alex Rins who was saying, "Oh yeah, uh, I can't know. I can't remember if it's uh, Alex Rins or um, or Brad Bender who was saying basically, you know, uh, fortunately there's all these onboard cameras here on um, uh, from the footage, so you can go, actually go and watch a lap of. Uh, you can learn the track by watching the the World Superbike races, watching onboard laps from there, and all the rest of it. So they've got a, at least an, a better of idea of." how to get around the track and where the track goes and all the rest of it. Um, but it's still not the same as actually riding it and figuring out all the little secrets yourself and uh, understanding where the, where the grip is. Um, so, yeah, they've got, you know, basically two days and then you've got to hope it doesn't rain because it might rain. Uh, you know, it's the tropics. It rains in the afternoon. Uh, you could end up losing a lot of time there. They're, they've got a lot of work to do uh, and a really a, a huge amount of unknowns uh, for, for for Mandalika. I have to say that the MotoGP riders are a lot luckier than the Superbike riders. They're able to look at proper onboard laps. The Superbike riders ended up getting an onboard lap from the scooter of the TV <laughs> director going around like a week before the event and the uh, Frank sent on the uh, sent sent on a, a, a file to me, and I think a lot of riders ended up getting that file sent on to them, and they were just like putting it up to like a hundred speed. <laughs> but uh, Steve, that was the only way that they were trying to learn the track for a few days of quarantine in, Steve, in the middle of Jakarta. You can't knock the Indonesian scooters. I mean, they could be as fast as some of the superbikes, you know, for all the modifications they have. <laughs> I'll I mean, be honest, Dad, I nearly killed myself on one of them, so I'm not <laughs> knocking them at all. But uh, I think for uh, for the MotoGP riders, it's going to be a little bit of a different experience compared to what we had whenever we went down to Indonesia. It's going to be interesting, actually, to see how it compares now, because everything was getting finished when we arrived, and everything was finished in time. But, uh, you know, another couple of months down the line, it'll be interesting to see just the small changes that have been made and the lessons that have been learned from having a, a big event there already. Because, Neil, we already saw what it was like whenever all the riders landed into the airport. Huge crowds already down in, in Mandalika for us. And uh, you're going to expect to see a big crowd at the test as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not the most uh, accessible place, I think, Lombok. Were, were the crowds at the Superbike race last year, Steve? Well, we had a limited capacity just because it was just by the government legislation. They were only allowed to have a few thousand people in it, but everything was sold and everyone was there. And uh, when you when you go for a run around the track, you actually see all these massive grandstands that they've been built for MotoGP. And uh, it's going to be full by the time we get there for the race. Um, it is... It is a little, well, do you know what? You say it's inaccessible to get down to Lombok. There's daily flights from Jakarta and uh, it's about a 20 minute drive 
down to the circuit there's a motorway most of the way and then a little bit of a road down through some of the towns that motorway the plan is to have it finished in time for the MotoGP race so hopefully if that's done then it becomes an awful lot easier to get in and out of out of the out of the track you know it's I tell you what, it's a great setting. You're down on the beach in the hotels. You're looking out, like I'm sure everyone's seen the social media posts from riders and team personnel at this stage. But you're looking out on sandy beaches, blue sky, green ocean. Like it's as good as anywhere we go in the world. But it's like anything else. Whenever you go to places in Indonesia, it always takes time to build it up. Burry Ram was the same. I think for me, that's where that's where superbikes should have a good role going forward with all these new tracks. I think it's really important that you're able to have a smaller championship that's able to to test all these facilities because when we went to Bury Ram for the first time in 2015 there was a lot of work needed to be done but by the time we finished up in Bury Ram it was ready for all the infrastructure needed for a MotoGP race the Indonesians would have learned an awful lot from hosting superbikes last year and hopefully that means that the full event for the Grand Prix runs really smoothly but I think it's exciting to go to places like that I think it's going to be interesting to see what the riders think of the circuit as well because the superbike riders actually really enjoyed it obviously enough we hope everyone's really enjoyed this week's paddock pass podcast we've been pretty busy over the course of the last week we have been uh, doing our paddock note shows we had a sepang test preview a day one and day two review so myself david neil and ad were on uh, on zoom calls all the way through the week just to make sure everyone was able to get themselves as up to date as possible from the tests so if you want to check out patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast for nine euros a month or ten dollars a month you're able to support the podcast and it really does make a big difference for allowing us to create an awful lot of additional content that paddock notes show comes out all the way through the season so we'll obviously be recording over the course of the indonesian test as well over the course of race weekends on friday saturday sunday we uh, post the paddock note show just to get everyone up to date and all the goings on in the paddock and then quite a lot of the time on a thursday after the preview we're able to uh, record a quick show just to see if there's been anything that's been added since uh, the the podcast would have gone live on the wednesday so keep an eye on patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast and a big thank you to everyone that supports the podcast and patreon from all of us and obviously a big thank you to fly racing and rent all street for supporting the podcast as well so we've got a couple of days until the motor gp bikes are back on track in indonesia so david's going to try and catch up on a bit of sleep neil's going to get himself outside into a bit of fresh air and uh, unfortunately for ad the work never stops he's still uh, working away at home but uh, it is uh, a busy time of year obviously the launches are taking place as well so keep an eye on social media as well to see all the latest motor gp bikes drop us your comments as well at paddock pass pod and uh, we'll see if they line up with david's thoughts on liveries adam's obviously very critical as well and neil just likes to see consistency so he loves that repsol honda bike <laughs> beauty it's a beautiful thing. so it's got more white in it compared to usual i think it's it's not too bad actually Ad's doing his best be really positive I like that now um, obviously thanks very much David for joining us on the show today and uh, same to Neil and Adam and until next week on the Paddock Pass podcast big thank you to everyone for listening to today's show this episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler David Emmett Steve English Neil Morrison and Adam Wheeler it was edited by Brian Burnett music is provided by The Liberty all inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com Good little quiz that Look one. Look how smug he is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just because he, he can work a spreadsheet. <laughs>
Uh, I can't believe it. Neil Morrison didn't get it. Wait till I tell Cormac in the group. <laughs> uh, no, that, that, that was that was just so that Neil would look human yeah. to our listeners. Yeah. It's, it's he fucking used yeah. yeah. COVID brain help. fog. Yeah. Exactly. Ad, yeah. Ad, Adam, Adam is, is quiz shaming uh, Neil Morrison here. <laughs> yeah, the poor recovering patient, Neil <laughs> Morrison here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You boys ready? Yeah. yeah.